What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, on uh, on Change the Narrative Saturday, we got uh, the index hit zero as we mapped out. <laughs> Settle. That's it. Um, it was instead of Change the Narrative Saturday, it was Order Restored Saturday by virtue yep. of LSU, Bama, Georgia, not only win, but all of those teams covered LSU backdoor cover with a pick six by major birds. <laughs> yeah. Didn't think that was going to happen. Uh, Georgia is the last remaining unbeaten and 2007 does not appear to be on the table, at least not yet. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the teams that were entering without an sec loss, um, you know, we saw Mizzou go down. Uh, we saw Texas A&M go down. Uh, it's kind of, we saw, you know, <clears throat> and we Kentucky. saw as well Kentucky go down as well. That yeah. was the other one I was thinking of. And you know, it's kind of unfair because there were a couple of teams in matchups where neither team had an SEC loss. But yeah, you know, this is kind of what we talk about with September is the best time of the year for college football, where everybody's hopes are wide open. And honestly, this has been the most wide open it's been, and it's still. It doesn't feel wide open. It feels like the door is still cracked. Like it doesn't feel like there are these. Now the East is done. <laughs> the East is slammed shut. Um, but I feel like there's still going to be some really fun games to be played in the West. But uh, yeah, feels like it's all it's all pretty much wrapped up. <laughs> if, if you're doing power rankings right now, and Ole Miss fans probably aren't going to like me saying this, but if they're being 100% honest, and if we're just talking about neutral site, the the Josh Pate index of um, who would who would win, who would you pick to win in these specific games? your top three is still probably Georgia, Bama, and LSU. And I guess maybe if you want to switch LSU and, and Bama, <laughs> I, like, I don't know. Like that, that is probably still where we're at. Or if we're not at that place, and if you want to put Ole Miss, because Ole Miss obviously has the head-to-head against LSU. Okay, Ole Miss yeah. fans, don't hate me. Um, but you're still looking at a reality heading into mid-October wherein – that's not a crazy thought to have. And, and for all the craziness that we talked about potentially being on the table, Saturday did not feel like it thickened the plot more so. It felt like it thinned out in a in a pretty significant way. Let's let's say this. Al- it's Georgia, Alabama, LSU, whoever is playing LSU. Those are the fourth yeah. the four best teams. Yeah. <laughs> LSU's LSU's opponent instantly number four. The, yep. You want to you want to have a get right game for your offense. All you got to do is run into those Bayou Bengals, and mm-hmm. buddy, let me tell you, they're going to make you feel pretty darn good about yourself. We're going to get to that game, which was just a thriller. It was kind of everything I hoped it would be in terms of the scoring back and forth. Don't really know how it's going to end. We're going to get to that in a second. We're going to get to all of the SEC on SEC action this week. Let's start with Bama and A and M. I wondered, and we talked about this in the pregame. I wondered how this would look for the Jalen Milrow arc. AM's defensive line was feasting in this game. And they feasted in this matchup last year, I, I thought. I thought it was their best game that they played all of last season. And this year, at least early on, it was kind of more of the same. And on the road, you're wondering, how is Jalen Milrow going to handle this? It looks like Bama, for whatever reason, is still dealing with these snap issues. I don't know why Bama can't figure out a snap. That that part is baffling. Eight pre-snap penalties, I think they had in this one. Mm-hmm. Just some of the things that they do over the course of a given game, you're, you're just telling yourself, how how does this stuff still happen? And I, I, I came into this one, and even early on, you're, you're wondering, how much does Tommy Reese trust Jalen Milrow 
in the passing game. What's that going to look like? Because last week, ah, Mississippi State, juicy matchup. Nope. Jim Melrose is going to throw the ball 12 times. We're going to stick to what we think we do best. And mm-hmm. that was good enough. And it worked. I thought Jalen Miller played excellent. He did. Not perfect. Yeah. Not perfect. Still telegraphed a pick. He took, I think it was six sacks behind an offensive line that, as Cole brought up in the pregame, was pretty overmatched, I thought, in some significant times. That hit that Edrian Cooper had on him where he just popped him in the back. And then the very next play, Milrow throws that pick. And you're kind of wondering, oh, man, how's he going to look coming off of this? This might be a, a downhill stretch for him early in the second half. And it was not. It was not at all. I thought he played great. Consider this. In a game that Bama had to avoid the alternative, they can't lose game. Not a must-win game. It can't lose game, right? (laughs) But if you lose this game, you lose control of the West, and getting that second loss when you're Bama, first weekend of October, would have hit differently. All those circumstances, and you're facing a halftime deficit in front of 102,000 people on the road, Jalen Milrow had career highs in completions with 21, pass attempts with 33, passing TDs, he tied his personal high with three, and he had a career high with 321 passing yards. That's pretty good. That that's that's big time. That is that is big time. Now it's not gonna all of a sudden make us feel like, oh, this guy is in the same breath as the Bama quarterbacks before him. But that's the type of stuff where if you're gonna win a division this good, you need to have moments like that. You just absolutely had to. And I think even AM fans by the end of this day were saying, All right, that guy can play. He's not just a runner. He was starting to hit on some of the intermediate stuff as well. And they took advantage of what looks like a juicy passing game matchup. The the Jermaine Burton Mm -hmm. connection. Whenever whenever Jermaine Burton was in single coverage, they pretty much said, we think we can win that every time. Barbecue chicken. I love barbecue chicken. Every time. (laughs) Oh, that made me hungry. I haven't had breakfast yet. That made me really hungry. There were so many instances in which it was pretty obvious that Tommy Reese, Jalen Milrow in the pregame said, hey, if we get single coverage on the outside, we don't care if it's Josh DeBerry, transfer from, I think he's transferred from Boston College, if I'm not mistaken, or Tyreek Chappelle, who was a guy that A&M fans had some high hopes for. It just had a really rough year for them. It was like every time they got them in single coverage, they attacked. And it didn't matter that Jermaine Burton came into this one quiet, where you have like eight catches for 189 yards on 13 targets on the season coming into this. And he basically matched that production. He matched the amount of targets. I think it's fair to say we're not Burton guys. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're not a Burton guy, are you? Yeah, I mean, it's just like we talked about it. It's like he's such a hard guy to root for because of what he did against Tennessee, because of, you know, he'll get a 10-yard catch for a first down. He's immediately up in the guy's face. Um, but yeah, you got to give credit where credit's due in this one. He he balled, man. I mean, he had almost 200 receiving yards, two tutties. And it's like, hey, you know, unfortunately, if you play that well, you get stuck as much trash as you want. He's got a little John Starks in him. That That's <laughs> – no, there there are not a ton of people that are going to be like, Connor, you're exactly right. No, 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 think about it. He's got some John Starks in him where he can have these stretches where he looks unstoppable and he looks really good. Now, this was – a, a game in which he put it all together for the first time in a long time. And then he has other things that he's going to do even within that same game where you're just like, dude, you can't headbutt Reggie Miller. What are you doing? We need you out here. Jermaine Burton 
talking trash immediately after after he had a drop two minutes before that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I still think that guy, more than anybody else in the SEC, gets judged based on the teams that he's played for more than the production that he's actually had. I, I For the first time in three years, he played like a number one receiver for a, basically a full game. He did. Yeah. That, that is his first time hitting the century mark against FBS competition since JT Daniels' first start at Georgia. Nah, you, nah you're kidding. The Mississippi State game. Say that again. That is Jermaine Burton's first time hitting 100 receiving yards in a game against FBS competition since JT Daniels' first career start at Georgia in 2020. Well, that's why he was so chippy, man. You know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Oh, I mean, he had, he had a drop. He had the, the fumble in the game. But yeah. outside of that, he was great. He he was fantastic. That slant where he, he basically mm-hmm. made three A&M receivers miss in space. And, and he's shushing the crowd. Bama needs some of that. You know what? Like Bama needed one of these guys to step up. And even if they're not going to be that guy for the entirety of the season, because I still don't think Burton's that player, they needed somebody who at least thinks he can be that guy over the course of a game. It says, I'm the alpha. I'm the best player on this football field. And you forgot what it was like for Bama to have a go-to receiver. And for mm-hmm. one day, at least, it looked like that. It, it did. But as as Jimbo said afterwards, Bama started getting quicker with some of the passing things that they were doing in the second half. It wasn't just chuck it deep or Milrow kind of tuck it and run and you know roll out of balance or something like that. AM didn't really adjust to that. And, and Milrow made those on-target throws. He did sail that throw to Burton. And then immediately, the very next play, and I think it was Andy Staples who tweeted, like, this is the entire Jalen Milrow experience in a nutshell. <laughs> the next throw that he made, once you saw the alternate angle to Burton on that first touchdown in the end zone, you're like, okay. That's uh, that, that's why people can always sip the Jalen Milrow Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid. That, that is it right there. That was progress, I, I thought, for, yep. for him. The Bama offensive line, it's just not going to be a world beater. That's who it is at this point. I, I think we're past the expectation that they can run for 200 yards against any given defense. I, I don't think that's the case. You were right about that Bama offensive line. I probably got a little bit too high on them. I can admit that fully. But I don't know. I The good news, Bama once again overcame a slow start. They did. Mm-hmm. And Milrow stayed poised. Combine that with a dominant second half from that Alabama defense. This was a separation day in the SEC West for a Bama team that had to have an effort like that. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, when comparing players and their performances, you have to look at what the expectations are. I think for Jalen Milrow, this is as good of a game as you could pretty much possibly have with Jalen Milrow's skill set. I think that we've seen him, you know, run the ball. We've seen them kind of be conservative with him, but this was a game he had to go out there and win. I mean, it was a day that we talked about it. Bama was, you know, not winning the battle up front. They were not running the ball well. Um, And, you know, we could talk about the sacks, like some of it's on the O-line plays, some of it's on Milrow himself. It's just, you know, on one hand, it's not a great match because he's a guy who can be turnover prone and he takes some big hits. That was my news, Jaden Daniels, but he takes some big hits and he can fumble. At the same time, that escapability is why he is and has always been the clear choice as Alabama's quarterback. Like that's that was kind of our whole thing with like the USF game is like, hey man, whatever you got, it's pretty much Jalen Milrow. And we saw today exactly why, which is this is a guy who can move the pocket, keep plays alive, and he has a cannon for an arm. I mean, yeah, he's gonna miss some five yard throws. He's gonna zip some throws that are gonna bounce off guys' hands, you know, but on a day where, you know, Bama had four fumbles. They only lost one of them. They couldn't run the ball. 
Um, you know, the, there wasn't a lot of help coming. The defense obviously played really well, and we'll get to that, obviously. But Jalen Milrow and <laughs> Jalen Milrow and Tremaine Burton were the stabilizing factors that really – I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. They went on the road – and really just took the air out of the AM stadium when it was when it was super um crucial, um, made the big plays they needed to make. And, and that's the thing with Miller. Like I said, he's never going to be a guy, I think we can say that, who is going to beat you six yards at a time. He's he's gonna be the guy who you contain him, contain him, contain him, and then he uncorks one. And we saw that over and over again. And this is a game where I thought that the experience that Mac John- Max Johnson had would be an advantage over Jalen Milrow. And in fact, the exact opposite was true. This is a game that was swung on Max Johnson taking a safety. You know, where Jalen Milrow, as much as you could say, well, it's like only one pick for Jalen Milrow is a dream because he's going to have one pick. And furthermore, the picks were kind of back-to-back with Max Johnson. It was like the pick almost didn't even matter because yep. Max Johnson followed it with another one. So Nice you know, play by Downs, by the way, to, to, to come up with that. that. That that gets lost in the shuffle of that game. But but how quickly he flipped the momentum to, to just mm-hmm. erase the Jalen Milrow mistake. I thought that was huge over the course of that game. 100%. And so it's like, yeah, you keep waiting for Max Johnson, the guy who's been a starter in the SEC since 2020, to say, okay, this is a home game. You know, we have all this talent. We have these great receivers. I mean, how about that day by Anaya Smith, man? Oh, I thought he was in initially. And on that that touchdown where it looked like it was going to make things interesting at the end. And when they first showed the replay, they're showing the far side replay and Gary's Gary keeps saying, look at his foot. His foot is out of bounds. I'm like, Gary, 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 you cannot tell me that from that angle that he is out of bounds. If you want to say that after seeing the other angle, fine, but there is no way on God's green earth that you were looking at this replay from that angle and telling me that Anaya Smith's toe stepped out of bounds. Then they show the pylon cam and they show that he was out of bounds, but Anaya Smith making plays against Alabama, he kept mm-hmm. them in that game. And in my opinion, was such a huge difference maker on a pretty quiet day for Evan Stewart. Uh, and the, I was talking about the return too, dog. That return, yeah, the return. Like oh. he he has some moments like that where you're reminded this guy is probably going to be one of those players who um, I don't want to say he gets lost in the shuffle in the SEC in terms of impact guys. But mm-hmm. just in, 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 he's probably going to be able to play in the NFL because of all the things he does in special teams and stuff like that. I don't know what his NFL future is going to look like, but they they needed him in some of yeah. those big spots, and they've really leaned on him heavily against Alabama over the years. It, it feels like I know last year was was different because he he wasn't able to to play in this game. He was already out for the year. The Jalen Milrow interception thing. I remember covering Wisconsin a Wisconsin game in 2017 when they hosted Michigan and I was at camp Randall and I remember it was in the midst of an Alex Hornibrook season wherein, you know, I think we look back on that and say, yeah, that didn't really go particularly well. I remember seeing Alex Hornibrook at IMG and for the Justin Jefferson profile that I did right before the, the draft in 2020, right before everything kind of shut down. And I remember thinking to myself, could I lift more than Alex Hornibrook? I don't know. Maybe, but it's at least a thought. Um, shout out Alex Hornibrook. I hope he's doing really well. But he threw basically an interception game. He threw a pick seemingly once a day. And I, I remembered saying to, to the Wisconsin defensive players afterwards, doesn't that, doesn't that weigh on you? It does isn't that just like the biggest kick to the nuts to know that your quarterback is going to have at least one of these turnovers and instead 
maybe this is just a little bit coach speak, but the way that they explained it to me, they said, well, we kind of know we expect it at this point. Right. It kind of forces us in in a given game. We go in thinking we're going to be put into some tough spots at times. We're that makes us lock in that much more. And I'm not saying that Jalen Milrow and his propensity to throw interceptions definitely has that impact on the Bama defense, but they look like they kind of cranked it up a little bit and the turnover, the very next play, Tips and overthrows. Got to get those, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's a Kirby Mel Tucker mantra that we're applying to Alabama. Don't get too upset, Georgia fans. But right. I kind of I kind of think about that with Milrow. And with a defense that's capable of doing that in those spots, is that something that can actually be seen as, okay, it's not as big of a hurdle. Now, if he starts turning the ball over two, three times in a game, different discussion. But if it's just going to be that one, if it's just going to be a treat. that one, just a little treat, <laughs> It does like cats can have a little salami. Just like cats can have a little salami. Jalen Milrow can have a little turnover if he's playing well. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You that and to me, I, I wonder if it's gonna look like that at times. Um we, we need to ask this question. And and I'm sure people listening to this are like, oh my God, how have you waited? How many how long are we into this podcast? We are 17 minutes into this podcast. How have we not brought this up yet? Since when is Jimbo Fisher more concerned about not losing to Nick Saban than beating Nick Saban? What what in the world was Jimbo thinking over the course of that game? There were four decisions that he made, and there's probably a couple that I'm forgetting. <laughs> four. <laughs> the fact that you have these written down, let's go. I the four decisions that he made over the course of the game where I just thought Jimbo. You know who's across that sideline, right? You know that this is this is the best coach in college football history, the guy that you worked for, the guy that you called out two years ago, that you've made it your mission. If we win one game in this season, it's going to be against Nick Saban in Alabama. You hired Bobby Petrito and DJ Dirk. Like, what are you worried about? <laughs> yes, yes. The decision to take a timeout into the half with 42 seconds left, where A&M is up 17 to 10, right? Mm-hmm. That, to me, Jimbo explains it to Jenny Dell, and he's basically saying, apologies, we got baby crying in the background. Um, Jimbo basically says to Jenny Dell, like, oh, yeah, you know, Bama had three timeouts. We didn't want to, you know, punt the ball back to them. And then, you know, they they could drive down the field and score on us or make a mistake, whatever. Okay. In college, with 42 seconds left, and you're on the your own 23-yard line, you have to gain essentially what, like, 40 to 50 yards, right? To feel like, okay, we could have a chance. 42 seconds, one timeout left, and clock stops after first downs. That, to me, is setting a message to your offense right there. Okay, so whatever. You, plus, you've got all that talent at receiver. Let, let's not forget, this offense mm-hmm. is different than what we've seen in years past. You can operate tempo. You can do all those things. You had a chance to go for the jugular, maybe make it a two-score game, kind of change the way that Bama's going to come out offensively. But you decide that you're scared of Bama's three timeouts. You want to sit on that seven point lead. All right, whatever. Not not my style. You're scared but I, of a ball. I mean, I, I I could I can kind of get that. Not crazy about it, but all right, whatever. What I don't get, and AM fans, you're right there with me. I know you are. Mm-hmm. Is having two separate instances of punting the ball in plus territory with fourth and six or less. Yep. One time it was fourth and one. And Brad Nessler, sure Brad Nessler says on the broadcast, I know fans won't like this, but you have to punt that. No, you don't. You no, sure no. don't, actually. No, no. You just, you absolutely do not. You, that's, that's how you, that's how you beat Nick Saban is telling your offense, you know what, guys, 
I don't think you can gain a yard. I, you know what? This is this is the blueprint to be able to beat Alabama, to take control of the SEC West, to put ourselves in the best position to win this division that we have ever been in since we joined this conference. We're gonna punt on fourth and one. In yep. plus as you know, we've talked about every win against Alabama at one point or another here. As we all know, the crucial point in that game where the team that's ahead goes ahead and just turtles and tries to not lose. It works every time against Alabama. I think Blake Topmeyer wrote about this too. He's like, Jimbo himself has said you don't beat Bama by punting and settling for field goals. And, and you're like, wait a minute, what, what is Jimbo doing? Even yeah. on the blocked field goal, which we, we're going to probably lose – sight of the situation itself because of the the craziness that happened with Braswell after should have been a dagger TD return. Not sure yep. in what universe Dallas universe or Dallas, Dallas Turner, Dallas nudging, universe. Yeah, Dallas Turner nudging Jake Johnson um, was considered a blindside block uh, yeah. when it's 10 to 15 yards behind the play, whatever that was bizarre, but Jimbo wanted to kick on fourth and five to try and make a seven point game. A four-point game. Yeah. From 40 plus yards. Um, mm, I know, I know we play the results. I know we do. Even if that goes in, it's still 24 to 20. You still are gonna need a touchdown to win this game. Okay. You, you just are. That that is reality when you're deep in Bama territory. And even I I, I guess we don't even have to include it, but the Gary's basically yelling at Jimbo at the end when they're down nine. And Jimbo's not kicking a field goal. And he's saying, you're wasting time. You need two mm-hmm. scores. Kick a field goal now. And instead, after Anaya Smith is ruled out of bounds, they decide we're going to waste more time. We're going to waste more time. We're going to go for the touchdown. Everything Jimbo did just came up empty. He got yep. way too conservative. He turtled. And instead of coaching like a guy that had nothing to lose, like we saw the last two years in this game, he played like someone who thought that $76.8 million buyout was on the line. And it wasn't, yep. it's was not, I, I just, th- th- and this game doesn't all of a sudden mean that Jimbo is on the hot seat or anything like that. So what I'm saying, but man, those opportunities are, they are fleeting. They're fleeting. You had a chance to go into Saturday night feeling better than any point that you, that then you have since joining the SEC. Yep. And that's your strategy. You blow a seven point halftime lead. You don't score a touchdown in the second half because punting and field goals were what you thought you needed to do to beat Nick Saban. And that, you're going to have to live with that. Yeah, 100%. And I I think, sorry, you got me so 85%, yeah. Oh, this is 100%. I'm right there with you. And what kills me is that talking about, you know, the Nick Saban losses, there have been pretty distinctly two different kinds. You have the, where the heck did this come from out of body experience, like Steven Garcia style stuff, or we have like the, this is just a better team. And A&M had a chance to be a better team than Alabama. They had a chance to, you know, have a non-conference loss to beat Alabama, to be in the driver's seat for what would have then been a very wide open SEC West to have only really at that point had to beat LSU and, and, you know, do their, a very strange game that would have been with Ole Miss and still will be. Um, but they had a chance to, at home, you know, beat Alabama, take the driver's seat in the West, and really, like, change the narrative about Jimbo, about Alabama, about the division, about everything. And it kind of just goes to show that it's like Jimbo, whenever he's – whenever it doesn't matter, you know, whenever it's against LSU late like this season, when it's against Alabama when they're already kind of out, 
then they can beat Alabama. Then they can beat these big teams. But when you actually need him to be the guy that you paid him to be, he's just not that guy anymore. I think it's it's safe to say that because beating Alabama is not the goal at Texas A&M. It's winning the SEC West and winning a national championship. Beating Alabama, you shouldn't, when, you're, when you have those facilities, that stadium, those recruits, you shouldn't think, well, we're just going to be the team that surprises Alabama. You should be in the driver's seat of the West sometimes. Six years now, and a and look, I'll, I'll, I'll say it, even though it's only one SEC loss, and who knows, maybe things will get weird, things will get crazy, but it's going to be six years now of Jimbo Fisher in which you haven't won a division title. And yeah. we don't have to talk about buyouts or anything like that. That's just a bummer if you're an a if you're an AM fan that is seeing what the hype was when he came on board. And now mm-hmm. you see these opportunities slipping away and opportunities that are there. And you have that advantage up front. And you've kind of built this team the way that you could have hoped for. And you're still seeing you're coming up just short because it's so obvious now that the West runs through Bama, three and oh, all division wins. Bama doesn't go on the road until it travels to Kentucky in a month. So think about that too. Kentucky and Auburn, those are the last two road games on Bama's schedule. I'm not saying that Bama goes 8-0 in an SEC play. I, I don't think that's a given by any stretch. I am saying that the division race heavily favors Bama. I think ESPN FPI, take that for what it is, had or ESPN Analytics, one of those two things, had it as like 83% for Bama to, to win the West. I, I think it's probably even more because think about this. Even if Bama loses to LSU, LSU still has that A&M game looming at the end of the regular season. That, that's yeah. still on the table. And LSU would still have to be 7-1 and one in the West with that defense, which we'll talk about in a second here. And I I don't know that you can bank on that. The scenario that I drew up in the preseason is still in play, Will. And that is the scenario that would make you as an LSU fan probably lose uh, three and a half years off your life, I Hmm. I think. That is, Bama loses to LSU. LSU loses to A&M in the regular season finale. And then Bama wins the West on the last day of the regular season by virtue of like, you know, winning at Jordan-Hare or something like that. That's still on the table. I don't know that we'll get to that place, but Bama has options now. It has a lot of options. And if you were hoping for chaos in the West, this this kind of squashed that for the time being. Yeah, I think that's just, it's all been said. I think this is just a game that, you know, we know who Jimbo is. I mean, and, and not to take everything back to LSU, but it's like Brian Kelly has more division titles than Jimbo Fisher. Think about that. <laughs> <sighs> Brian Kelly in the SEC has been to more conference championship games than Texas A&M in the 21st century. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Even and if so you want to include the Big 12 as well, by the way. Man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just is what it is. If this is an A&M team that it's impossible to feel sorry for, even though that, you know, Wigman goes down. Oh, no, you got to start a guy who's been starting in the SEC since 2020, who, you know, transferred because his brother was a top tied. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like when you, when you watch Kentucky get throttled by Georgia and you're like, oh, those guys. Like, this is like – you should be on this plane. So instead of talking about that, I'm going to talk about, you know, what a, what a great way to send out uh, the SEC on CBS. I mean, we had just an insane game where everybody was so certain how everything was going even. And it was a coin flip, right? Like you talked about how the commentators were certain about things that were just dead wrong, but they were also certain about things that were right. And the funniest thing I've seen in a while was they had a graphic that was comparing Blake Sims, Jake Coker, and Jalen Milrow. 
And I was like, that is the meanest thing I've ever seen because you just got to kind of understand that the offense is different. And that you, you just hear Gary like, well, they don't have a, a Derrick Henry on this team. This You got to do more than that. And you know what? I mean, Jalen Milrow answered, but it was just, just such a funny, like classic of a SEC on CBS game. And it's what we'll miss because it was everyone was annoyed the entire time. Yeah, I don't think anybody left this game feeling particularly good. And A&M fans, uh, you probably are thinking to yourself, that that was just the worst. That was the absolute worst to have that kind of hype and then to see the way that things played out. But yes, a very pivotal game in the West race. Let's go to LSU and Mizzou. This game was a lot, Will. It was it was yeah. just a lot. In every way, it was a lot. It was a lot of horrendous officiating. Oh my God. Some of the calls that were that were missed, LSU pushing that entire team into the end zone early on, and somehow they ruled that he wasn't in the end zone. The Mason yep. Smith face mask of Brady Cook, the the missed holding penalties, like some of the things that, that you're just letting slide in this game. You're just, where where are you guys looking? What what's going the, on? The here? false start, and you know what I will say too. The oh yes, the false start that they missed uh, from oh, from from Mizzou that they somehow did not call. Just terrible. Like. Where else are you looking? I, I just did not get that. And I'll say this, man, like as dumb as all of that was, and that was all very, very, very dumb. You know, the thing that infuriates me the most, because I've seen this everywhere, is this disconcerting signals call. Where oh, did yeah. this come from? Like <laughs> it happened three times in that game. And if you pop into different games, you see it happening everywhere. And it, okay, disconcerting signals, if you guys don't know, if you're on defense, you just can't clap now. You just can't clap at all. Um, and because it's considered disconcerting signals for when a team goes to a silent count. And my thing is, like, if you've ever been a competitor, like, we've both, like, played sports, been competitive, you want to, as a leader, kind of get your guys going and be like, all right, guys, like, let's go. Let's get it going. Let's get it going. You can't do that. What I just did right there, that's a penalty in the NCAA right now. Bob Washusen was saying that I think it's only the disconcerting signals comes into play if the offense uses it at a for a snap and then like if the offense uses it early on in the game that is the message to the defense you cannot do this at all mm -hmm. for the rest of the day if the offense never uses a clap for the signal then the defense i believe is allowed to use it so that could be the discrepancy as to why it is called in certain instances and why it is not and i think because mizzou had used the clap for its snap count, then that was what allowed it to be called. But it's still such a game by game, play by play sort of thing. And you're just like, I I, I don't know how to figure this out. I, I don't know when, when this is going to be called. It's not like we all of a sudden have this signal that goes off in the course of a game, like a, a little thing that you know how you can watch during a game and you see how many timeouts the team has left. It's like, oh, this yeah. is offensive team no has parties. <laughs> Is, you've already used RG, their clap for the day. You've already used your clap. This is now cheating if the defense wants to do it. RG3 said uh, these teams have a case of the claps. I don't know how – I don't know where RG3 comes up with this stuff. Like I, like some of this stuff is, is premeditated. It totally is. Yeah. But when he's coming up with that, I'm just like, look, man, I – that's it was this game was a lot this game was yep. a lot it, it was a lot of points it was a lot of missed tackles it was a lot of momentum swings and it was a lot of big picture takeaways for both teams a game in which LSU I think felt fortunate to win um did not have on my bingo card what if I had a bingo card while playing while watching football <laughs> just every single game uh yeah. did not think LSU pick six 
was going to be the final meaningful play of this game. DBU, it's back, baby. Then uh, don't break. I, uh, I don't know, man. That was that was survive in advance for for LSU in, in every sort of way, and nobody nobody embodied that better than Jaden Daniels and the performance that he delivered. Yep. Before I praise Jaden Daniels, will how many years did this game take off of your life? Was it was three and a half? Is that is that the the number? Man, between this week and last week, like it felt like the twilight zone. Like it was literally like the the crew was the same. Like it was it was RG three was on both. It was so many similarities between both games, and it was just you know this is what happens when your defense is horrible. Every game is a pick 'em, but it was like down to the wire. It was it was it was a fun Saturday for about two seconds at the end. I'll say that. Yeah. When, when Jaden went down with the rib injury, it felt like that game could have gone a hundred different ways. Maybe Nussmeyer comes in, saves the day. Maybe Mizzou scores three more touchdowns, runs away with it. Or, as we found out, maybe Jaden Daniels would dig deep, unlike probably any point in his LSU career, and he would put that team on his back. I, I don't know how intense the pain was. I'm not going to pretend that I'm a doctor and I know exactly what he was going through. I can't imagine he felt great when he made that throw to neighbors that hung in the air. They were talking about that on the broadcast about how, you know, if 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 you're dealing with a rib injury, that's the type of throw that's so hard to make and it, it hung up in the air. I thought we were about to see a limited version of Jaden Daniels down the stretch and it was really going to put a lot of pressure in those tense moments. But instead, he comes back in after they had to settle for the field goal with Nussmeyer two touchdown drives. He had the 35 yard scamper with his legs for six. He found a wide open Malik neighbors for another go ahead score. Well, you said it at this point, there's no argument. Jane Daniels with a messed up rib is still the best quarterback in the sec. And that performance was so gritty and so unbelievably tough given the circumstances and given what, what that is like to do that on the road, knowing how bad your defense has played. And yep. to come up with a, an effort like that, I, I've been critical of Jaden in the past, and I think he gets a, he gets a lot of love. Man, every bit of praise that guy earned on that day. Yeah, I mean, it, and that was where it really felt like the game was getting away from LSU, where you know they have that weird touchdown where like the whole defense is standing up because it was so clearly a false start, and then LSU comes all the way down and is ready to like answer that. And like I was joking with my buddy, it's like football is such an interesting game. Because there are times when a team will kind of score a touchdown where you're like, okay, like that was kind of nonsense, but we're just going to move on. And then something will happen on the ensuing drive where you're like, oh my gosh, this now matters massively. That's exactly what happened. And like you're sitting there looking up, okay, that touchdown happens. LSU gets all the way down the field. Jaden Daniels scampers into the end zone and gets hit by a dude who is fully standing in the end zone. Like that's that's what happened on the injury is Jaden Daniels scampers around the outside. Uh, uh, there's a dude who just kind of – it wasn't like a dirty hit, but it was just uh, yeah, a dude was – I was going to ask you that. Like, I didn't when when they slowed it down, the hit looked dirtier than it actually was. I I thought in real time it w it was kind of fine. Like he was still trying to get to the edge and get to the goal line. If if that was your takeaway that that play was unbelievably dirty, I'd say watch that in real time and don't necessarily make that determination off of slow mo. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was a situation where it was a Mizzou defense that had been super physical all day, and I think that. At the end of the day, you know, you want to get a couple of licks in on Jaden Daniels. It just is what it is. I don't think it was dirty, but I think, it, I mean, their best hope of winning that game was knocking Jaden Daniels out of it, as we saw. Probably, and even yeah. with hurting his rib, it didn't really matter. So, like, that was the best defense they had. So, but point being, you know, he scampers in. They called a holding call on Pimpton, who's like, okay, like, you're a freshman tight end. Great. Love to see that again. But point being, 
then then um, Nussmeier comes in and he's just lost out there. I mean, it's just a nightmare scenario to walk into. And then, you know, so so it's like you're going back and forth. You need a touchdown. Okay, we'll sell for a field goal. And then they had a field goal go over the upright. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in this game, let me just quickly talk about this. Okay, kicking, not something I thought LSU was going to beat Mizzou at on the day. Going into half, Mizzou and our, our buddy, the thicker kicker, banks one off of an upright to go in. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Then he shanks an easy one. LSU's guy, Ramos, is two for two. And we're like, okay, we're feeling great about the kicking game. He has one sail over the upright, and they count it no good. And, Connor, you texted me like, I thought that was good. I'm sitting there screaming at my television like, oh, my God, we're going to lose this game. That At this point, we certainly don't deserve to. Okay, boom, fast forward through all that because that was the chaotic part of it. Uh, LSU's defense finally gets a stop. Jaden comes out there, man, and just – ball I mean you know me like and how much like what this means coming from me that was maybe the grittiest performance I've ever seen by an LSU quarterback and like I remember Joe Burrow playing a national championship with what we thought was a broken rib the fact that Jaden comes out there and is scrambling for first down after first down so clearly injured um he hurdled the guy <laughs> Jaden is going to put himself in harm's way that yep at this point of his career, fifth year starter, I as much as I wince whenever he does that, he's just never going to fully get rid of that. And even the play where he took the hit with the rib, I thought it was a little bit of that where you're thinking to yourself, you still got to protect yourself probably more in that spot. And, it, and he's going to have to learn how to play through pain and how to come back because – if you're going to be susceptible to those types of hits because you don't want to protect yourself in that way, then all right, this is the type of toughness that you hope to be able to show in these spots. And he did that. He did that. Mm -hmm. This this is who LSU is at, at this point. And yep. that offense, Jaden Daniels, he fully understands it. Like he, he really, yep. really does in a way that I don't think he did last year, even when he was coming back so often early in the season. Five minutes into the second quarter, Mizzou already had 219 yards of offense against LSU. <laughs> they sure did. That meant in an 80-minute stretch, LSU had allowed 926 yards of offense. I typed that out, and then I thought, that's a typo. I messed that up. Let me do that again. No, no, no. 707 yards of offense against Ole Miss that they allowed, and then 219 through 20 minutes against Missouri. No, that's 926 yards of offense that they allowed. Any hope whatsoever that LSU was going to come out and contain Mizzou, and they were going to flip that switch, they were going to make the week-to-week -week adjustments. Uh, nope. Nope. That, mm -hmm. that, and, and I do – I, I want to praise Mizzou's offense, okay? And, and I'm going to get to that. But I don't. LSU, you, you don't want to praise Mizzou's – okay, let, let, me, no. let me do that then. Let me do that. Okay. Luther Burden's incredible. He was still really good in this game. Quieter mm -hmm. second half. Um, it's it, sometimes I think to myself, it's kind of amazing how Mizzou lost its best offensive player from last year, Don Lovett, and instead all they did was put Luther Burden into that exact spot, and they have gotten better for it, and that just never happens. It's so atypical to see something like that. It's almost like when you have a guy that goes to the NFL and he was this guy who was your all-time leading rusher in school history. And that's not what Dom Lovett was at Mizzou, but he had a really, really right. good year when he was on the field. And, and then all of a sudden 
you bring in the guy who's a sophomore and you're like, oh, wait a minute, this guy can score 80 yard touchdowns. And he actually gives us more versatility, more home run playability in the offense. That's kind of what Luther Burden has become. I did not expect Brady Cook to play a perfect game. <laughs> I definitely did not expect his interception streak to come to an end at the hands of Harold Perkins in coverage. <laughs> Didn't have that on my bingo card either, Will. Didn't. He's just Goku. I mean, like, think about this. We're sitting there. It's third down. We haven't gotten a pass rush in two weeks. LSU does not have a sack in two weeks at this point. Madhouse inexplicably puts Harold Perkins in coverage, and the dude just jumps out of the gym like Jordan and breaks the consecutive completion record without an interception. Uh, that that tells you how weird this game felt and how unpredictable it, it was. And Cook ends up having the the second interception. The, the loss in the shuffle play though was the backside sack where he had that fumble. It when they're trying to come back in the fourth quarter late and they lost. What did they lose? Like twenty yards? Yeah, on it was, that it play? was fourth and thirty-two. Yeah. Oh, and it was fourth and NFL blitz. It, <laughs> man, it was that. That was the play that I thought. Obviously, the pick six looks really bad. But yeah. that was the play where I thought, oh, man, you you needed to be able to protect. You needed Brady Cook to be able to kind of sense that backside pressure. And no, that that did not happen. And, and I end up feeling bad for Mizzou fans in this game. Chris Budden, friend of the program, Mizzou grad, mm -hmm. just talking about I've never seen the student section look this good. They were so fired up. They were ready to go. 11 a.m. local time kickoff. And that atmosphere looked really good. And they were just chomping at the bit for a victory. You have a lead late, middle of the fourth quarter. You're feeling like this could finally happen and your program could be taking a step in that direction that you've been waiting for. And then it plays out like that. And you're reminded, if you're a Mizzou fan, this is kind of why we can't have nice things. That's, yeah. Uh, I don't think Mizzou's a fraud. Yeah. It's just a wasted, it's a wasted opportunity. It's a wasted opportunity. Your offense was thriving. Brady Cook still looked um, solid, solid, yeah. but shaky at times. And I thought the O-line mostly protected well, but just too many missed opportunities. If you're going to win a game like that, you can't have double-digit penalties at home. You can't have coverage bust where you're leaving Malik neighbors wide open <laughs> yeah. for game-winning touchdowns. The the missed kick with, with thicker kick or Mevis, like all that stuff. You can't be that sloppy in a game of that magnitude. And the top-ranked run defense in the SEC letting up 274 rushing yards for LSU. Yep. You, you just can't have that. Not disciplined enough. Just not a clean enough game for Mizzou to be able to win as an underdog in that spot. I do find myself kind of looking forward to Mizzou's offense against Georgia's defense, but that that's definitely not the clear takeaway from this game. Okay, let me because like in this game, to be clear, if you guys didn't watch this game, this game was chaos. The way that we're covering this nuts. game is appropriate. Like it's because we're sitting there like, oh, and this happened, and this happened, literally. So I'm gonna quickly take this back to Jaden Daniels and just kind of show a microcosm of this game. Okay, so I remember like the, Mizzou. <laughs> I didn't even say this after LSU's defense got this one stop. You know, they missed a field goal. Uh, it feels like the sky is falling. They get a stop. Mizzou has this insane punt that just goes all completely flips the field. And Jaden Daniels, like, we don't think he's coming back in the game. Last time we saw Jaden Daniels, he's on the ground, like, basically, like, wincing. He's not, like, a screamer or anything. But as much pain as he'll show, he's showing. Jaden Daniels trots out there. He's got to go the length of the field. And you hear, and I mute my television after, like, 30 seconds because I'm getting emotional. I hear Robert Griffin III being like, 
you know, he's really going to have to manage that injury. And I'm thinking to myself, Robert Griffin III is a guy who I was about an offseason away from buying his jersey. Like, I loved him as a player. And I'm sitting there looking at Jaden Daniels, who's obviously, like, in so much pain. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's one one hit away from just, like, being done for the year, from ending up like RG3. And as much, like, I remember watching that game with the Redskins and being, like, distraught as, like, have no no dog in the fight, being so happy for this player. I'm sitting there looking at Jaden going, oh, my God, please don't do that. Goes all the way down the field, scores, da 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 Okay. Now, juxtapose that with Mizzou, okay? Mizzou, this is why, you know, we talked about the state win against Kansas State, da 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 Eli Jigrowitz showed me something today, and it's that he's just not that guy. Because when you start the game, okay, and you're up 22-7, okay, LSU can't stop a nosebleed. What swung this game happened so early in this game that all this other stuff, you know what I'm saying? It mattered. It certainly mattered. And this game was back and forth and back and forth. And back. I'm not telling you the game was over. But what truly sunk Mizzou was the first pick that Brady Cook threw. Because after that pick, he was a wildly different player. Like night and day, like turn on the lights, fraud alert player. Because they go down in their first three possessions. And it's like, he. I started to text you, Connor. I'm seeing things out of Brady Cook that I didn't see out of Jackson Dart last week. Because even when the coverage was there, he was hitting guys in the hands. Weiss, that dude, Weiss, uncoverable. I was worried about Luther Burton, and I got to know Weiss. Because that dude, on the first three drives, I was like, they got two of these things. I, we can't stop this team. But then he throws this pick. And then suddenly, instead of trying to trust, trying to test the worst DB room in America, instead of trying to get the ball down the field to the best receiver, in America, and in a game that had Brian Thomas Jr. and Malik Neighbors, I can Luther, I can look at Luther Burton and say that's the best receiver in America. And they decided to instead of get the ball down the field, instead of let him get a 50-50 ball, 80-20 ball. If you're Luther Burton, they're throwing the ball at the line of scrimmage. They're running the ball. They're doing these dumb little bubble screens. So I'm sitting here as an LSU fan, going, "Please keep doing that." And so that's what kills me from a game planning standpoint. They lost this game. There's just no way to say it because you have a defense like. I think that we as commentators try to sometimes take away positives when it's only just a lack of negatives. Did LSU's defense improve in the second half? Sure, because you can't get worse. <laughs> Mizzou handed them this game because if they, we saw when they needed a touchdown at the end of the game, how easy was it for them? Yeah, it was. It, it was. And, and part of that, I, I think Kirby Moore has been a great hire. He, he's got to be able to take responsibility for that as well because if he's the mm-hmm. one that's that's calling plays, he's, he's part of that blame. The pick six with major burns. They were targeting Luther Burden. Yep. But it was it was a misread in zone coverage. And it was a downfield target. And you think to yourself, just force the ball to Luther Burden. Good things usually happen. But I think he missed that throw. I think Jaden Daniels can make he that missed, throw. That's the thing. Uh I don't I, I don't I, I just don't think the throw was there. I think the coverage was was good enough to be able to make that play. And, mm-hmm. and I, I just I, I think that's the the tough area and why this is so difficult, even against a team that is struggling the way that LSU was, is that you're still a bad read or two away with how good LSU's offense is moving the ball. You're still a bad read or two away from, you know, from costing your team a chance at a comeback. And the margin for error is still really slim. And it was for that Mizzou offense. They hadn't had pressure put on them in, the, in that sort of way all season. And in that's mm-hmm. a finding moment when you needed that, that comeback they kind of unraveled and it was, I, I think for, for drink, I think for, for Brady cook, for, for Kirby Moore, it was one of those games in which you thought, man, this was there. This was there. Mm-hmm. Everything that we thought we could do. We did, we did. And instead we still 
did not play the 60 minute game that we needed to, to be able to come out with a win. Um, that game next week, Mizzou travels to Kentucky. Interesting. Very, yep. very, very interesting. Um, Mizzou could have been a top 15 team heading into mid October. And instead home fans are still hoping for the first win against a ranked team involving a, a pair of ranked teams, I should say at home since 2013. And let me say one more thing, because the, obviously probably two of the top five craziest things that happened in this game we haven't even talked about, which was Drake going forward and fourth and 32, and then Jaden Daniels fumbling <laughs> on the ensuing. Like, we're sitting there. It's fourth and 32. And it's like, you guys are so – that's where I was going back to with injured Jaden Daniels. It's fourth and 32. You guys are so scared of injured Jaden Daniels. You go for it. You don't want to give him the ball. And then it ends up being the wrong call anyway because we LSU does not get a first down. They give the ball back to you. And that that read where the dude shot the gap and just hit Jaden Daniels in the ribs, oh, my gosh. Like, this game almost was a Mizzou win even with that terrible decision. There was, I think, a minute 15 left, and Mizzou had all three timeouts, and it was fourth and 32. Mm-hmm. And, and the conversation was, wait, you, you got to punt it, right? I, I think I think you kind of do. Kind of like, duh, <laughs> I, I yeah that that was an instance where okay you have three timeouts you probably do have to punt that again we play the results on this obviously if they it's thirty two yards I know but punting with a minute fifteen left when you're down is just so out of the norm there's no situation in the world in which you've probably ever done that and instead yeah. you're looking up going well I guess we just got to go for it we're gonna have to get a defensive stop anyways so. I don't know that that part's a little bit tougher just because of how, and we're going to talk about some clock management issues. Oh yeah. Um, but man, and by the way, oh, miss this in the Bama game. My brother brought this up to me. We're gonna we're gonna dunk on Miami a little bit later on. But Saban mm-hmm. not having the ability to get through to Milrow when Milrow threw that pass on first down instead of kneeling at the end of the game, you're like, wait, what are you doing? I think Gary yelped when that happened. It's like we had clock management issues across college football that just made you want to pull out your hair. I don't know that that quite falls into that, but you could have easily punted the ball and and said, we have three timeouts. Let's just get a stop here. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's go on to Kentucky and Georgia then. It turns out not everyone can hang with Georgia. (laughs) Breaking news. Breaking news. (laughs) Um, the two-time defending champs, they made those adjustments. Kentucky still cannot hang with Georgia. Cannot. And uh, I, I thought Georgia was going to be able to go back to the drawing board a little bit defensively. I, I didn't think that the passing game for Georgia would suddenly look like peak 2022 levels. That yeah. was, in my opinion, a continuation of the Auburn game, at least from what Georgia was doing offensively. The scheme is working Bobo's dialing up great looks. They're attacking downfield. Carson Beck looks comfortable. They're protecting for him. Beck had over 300 passing yards in the first half of this one. That is mm-hmm. I, against a, a good Kentucky defense, too. That That has been rock solid so far, albeit against one of the worst schedules in all of college football. I speculated, hey, maybe it'll be a lad game. Nope. <laughs> it, it was not a lad game. It was just another Brock Bowers game. Imagine that. Yep. Crazy. Third consecutive game that he passed the century mark. Well, most SEC tight ends will not have 300-yard games in their careers, okay? Yep. Bowers goes for 7-132 and 132 in a TD. You that should have Jermaine dropped. Burton had one since pre-COVID. Right? <laughs> nice. 
He actually had a drop in the end zone too. So it could have been yeah. an even bigger night. McElroy said on the broadcast that Brock Bowers was human right after that. Yeah. I was dying laughing. That sounded like us. That was, that was a good one. I, ah, look, I might have said that on McElroy's airwaves once or twice. I'm not saying that he definitely stole that from me, but I, I was sitting there, Arthur, Arthur, uh, Arthur meme, you know, with, with the, the fist clenched, like, <laughs> don't you dare say that Brock Bowers is human. Don't you dare. I'm still TBD on that personally. Because... I love how they were just like, I, like I love that. Uh, and again, you know me; I'm not a huge macro guy. But the fact that he was leaned into the bit, he was like, "You got to turn your cleats in after that drop, young man. That was terrible." <laughs> that was I really actually, good. I actually, I actually kind of, I, I like that from from McElroy in, the, yeah. in that spot. Anybody that's acknowledging what we what we've been saying on these airwaves for the last two years, that's uh, that's good with me. Brock Bowers moves into second all time on Georgia's receiving touchdowns list for his career. Man. He is behind only Terrence Edwards, who is mm-hmm. also the first and only thousand yard receiver in program history. Wow. Yeah. That's the stat that, that to me, I'll throw that around. And that's, that's one that I've talked to McElroy about before. Yep. Bowers is up to 545 receiving yards in the season. Look at him compared to the rest of the tight ends in college football. It's insane. It's, he <laughs> yeah. is so far and away ahead of everyone. Even if Georgia misses the playoff and let's, let's say that that Bowers only plays 13 games, right? So let's just say that, for the sake of math, and we're, we're just talking about it as it relates to the Heisman conversation, which I have a note that we're going to get to later in Yarna. So even if Bowers only plays 13 games, he still only needs to average 65 receiving yards per game the rest of the way to hit 1,000 receiving yards. That's just in a 13-game season. Yeah, I That's, think with a broken rib, I'll let Jaden Daniels, he could average that. He <laughs> if he's out there, he's getting that. Dude, he is He is playing at such a high level right now it doesn't seem fair bobo called for a direct snap to bowers on third and five tight end got a direct snap on third and five it didn't work but i was like yeah whatever good call i i would probably do that if anybody was playing ncaa and you get to have brock bowers on your team you're gonna probably have some of those spots where you're like yeah third and five brock bowers yeah he could probably pick this up for us he'll he'll find a way Mm -hmm. but anyway Kentucky did not have a chance in this game. It didn't really matter that Liam Liam was dialing up some looks, man. It, like yeah. Kentucky's scheme was not an issue at, at all. And I, I thought Ray Davis still made his presence yeah. felt. Stoops after the game, I don't want to say that he threw Devin Leary under the bus. He clearly was not happy with Devin Leary. He talked about, I don't usually talk to quarterbacks during the game. The camera showed him <laughs> pulling Leary aside saying like, Come on, man. Some of the throws that he is missing, they, they like there was one that he overthrew to Tavion Robinson where you're just like, he is in a wide open space. You cannot make that that throw in this environment, in that spot. You just can't have that. You're not gonna have a chance. And Kentucky wasn't disciplined enough to stay in that football game. That Deion Walker smash of said Van Pran was weird. One of the weirdest plays of the day. Where I, look, Deion Walker looks like he was trying to take out some frustration. That was some all-American on all-American crime right there. Kind of a dirty play, in my opinion, the way that that, that, that all yeah. unraveled. Not necessarily a fan of that. I don't know how a human being drops said Van Pran like that, but he was able to do so. Kentucky was not disciplined enough to be able to win this game, obviously. I don't think that uh, this game – I don't think the timing of this game – could have been any worse for Kentucky. 
and we came into this wondering if this was ideal, actually, because of what Ray Davis did last week, because of Georgia having its worst run defense day in five years. And instead, it looked like Kentucky ran into a buzzsaw, a championship-level buzzsaw. And yeah, I don't know that it all of a sudden makes Kentucky's 5-0 and start flimsy. I don't think that's totally fair to say. But I think it's a reminder that you can feel good about your team on its best day, which Kentucky had in a lot of ways last week against Florida outside of the passing game. But you can see how far away your team is from Georgia, and especially when Georgia is clicking like that. This game was so bad for Kentucky that Ugga was getting boops in the fourth quarter, Will. Almost almost chicken wing level. That's one degree it, below eating chicken wings. My mind went there. I thought to myself, what what is more disrespectful? Georgia eating chicken wings in the middle of a national championship against TCU or Ugga just strolling through saying, you know what? I haven't got enough boops today. Let me get some love <laughs> from the Georgia players. Uh, it, it's close. It's right up there. I think the chicken wings is still probably one notch more on the disrespect index. Um, yep. But yeah, it was that type of day. It was that type of day for Georgia. Yeah, I think, you know, I felt bad after the last one because I immediately, after that big going against Florida, started talking about Pat, Kentucky's passing game and how it was out of sync. And that's that's kind of the point, right? It's like, hey, you guys know you can beat Florida. Again, you guys have proven time and time again Florida is not even really remotely an obstacle for you. Georgia is. Uh, they always kind of have been under in this little era. And there was a point, and I, I texted you about it, where I was just furious because if you look at how Georgia started this game, Touchdown, 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 field goal, touchdown, and a half. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this game was over maybe two or three possessions in, but there was a moment where there was a glimmer of hope for Kentucky. A, a, and like I totally agree with what you said, that the scheme was there. There was a dude streaking across the field on like a third down. Wide, I mean, like you could have made this throw. And Devin Leary just airmailed him. And I think that was the Tavion Robinson throw. I, I'm pretty sure we're yeah. talking about the same play. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, man, like that was so brutal. And like I said, I texted you immediately. It's like, that's when that game ended to me because they showed, I was trying to find like the exact thing. I'm sorry if you like brought that up, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it, it just shows like how out of sync this past game is. And like, I was like, was like, dude, he's gotta be throwing missiles. Like there's no way that all of these receivers are trash. There's no way that everybody has dropped problems. Like I sent you this metric that shows like, you know, basically who's getting the most help from the receivers and at the top, or I guess at the bottom of the list, I want to phrase it that way, was Leary. Like, he had the most drops, the most batted balls, the most all this stuff. And as much as I would love to say, we love Leary. Like, you know, he, Tim Beck survivor. Like, we love the transfer coming in. But I think at some point when you have a quarterback with this much seniority, he's got to be able to get his guys the ball in those spots. And I just think that they never stood a chance because even when the offense was getting guys open, it, they were just unable to be in sync. I don't know. I know the takeaway is Georgia looks championship level. Oh my God, this team does have that upside. Get all that. I was thinking about Stoops a lot. And I was thinking about how frustrated he probably is to think about this in year 11, wherein he recognizes the weaknesses, the limitations of his team. He made the scheme change, which is not an easy thing to do. He goes out and he gets his offensive coordinator back an offensive coordinator that is now making close to $2 million. That looks like it's working. Your transfer portal additions mostly look like they're working. Ray Davis yep. has been all SEC running back, no doubt about it whatsoever. 
your offensive line looks improved, which you overhauled via the transfer portal as well. You still have a really good defense that you feel strongly about. And then you go out, and even when you're undefeated, and you see you're that far away still, and you're yep. that far away. You got one of probably the two best quarterbacks from the portal. Sam Hartman, you could make the case, was number one, and maybe Leary's number two, or, or some variation of that. At least that's what tough we were talking day about. For those guys. <laughs> tough day, very tough day for both of those guys. And you're still that far away. That far away. I like that is a really tough pill to swallow. And for all the talk about how Mark Stoops has the best job in America because of the job security, because of the expectations, and because of what he is currently making now as a member of the $9 million club. If you saw the the Steve Berkowitz USA Today coach's salary story that came out earlier in the week, it's a must click for me every single year. You see now how exclusive that company that Mark Stoops is in. You see all these things and you think to yourself, that guy's got a great life. Mm -hmm. I think nights like this are tough for him to be able to put his head to the pillow and feel like everything is perfect. And that's a very obvious thing to say when you get smashed like that. But when you see that, that wall that you're just not going to be able to climb, the competitors have a difficult time stomaching that world. And even though that world has changed, and I think Kentucky has adapted pretty well to that world with NIL and the things that they're trying to do, that that to me is just one of those reminders that you can have maybe the best job in the world, but there are still things that leave you feeling like there's a piece of you that's empty. And I thought about that a lot with, with Mark Stoops. Look, you get smashed by Georgia – Nobody's going to say that that means you're any lesser of a coach. You can throw this game away and move on to Mizzou pretty easily. But just for the the overall trajectory of the pro, of the program, I just kept thinking about that. So I didn't mean to go as long on that, but I don't know. Just that that was uh, that was a very telling game, I thought, for Kentucky. Yeah, and not to you know dumb it down too much. I I fully agree with you. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think that Mark Stoops has to kind of. Oh, this is so tough because we we both like are just he's a lad. Mark Stoops is a good dude. We, you know, we love his story. Love all the Youngstown stuff. Love that the players like he's probably given more players NFL futures. Like, let me try to think about how to correctly phrase this. The guys that are coming through Alabama and Georgia, those are NFL players. Really, they could play nowhere. They could go get a job and go play in the NFL. A lot of them, the guys that are four and five stars, he has created more NFL money, I think, than any active head coach. Does that make sense? Ari Wasserman did that story on the Athletic about the the. Um, ability to turn a three-star into an NFL player, all those different things. Yep. You'd have to look up those numbers, but that that is actually out there. The athletic, I think it was David Ubbin as well. They did like the full breakdown uh, of what that looks like. And, and Kentucky obviously has a good track record of, of doing that. But at the same time, like you say all that, what do you do? What, what can you possibly do at this point to prevent that from happening? say, have your quarterback make on target throws, have less penalties. Uh, I don't know that there's an adjustment to make. And that's probably the most frustrating thing is because you've done what you've aspired to do by maximizing your resources, maximizing, maximizing your recruiting, finding those diamonds in the rough. And still that's the result. That's, that's my point. Yeah. And, and, and where, where I'm going with that too, is like, I do think this is a perfect spot for Mark Stoops and I hope he doesn't get greedy and go elsewhere because what he has established, um, he can be in this game at home. Let me try to put it that way. But when this game is on the road, 
turn your TV off. It's not worth watching. Yeah, even at home, it's been difficult to score against that Georgia defense. At least, what? Well, see, last year they were in a pick'em game with a worse team against a better Georgia team. That game was back and forth, and I just think I think that's kind of where we're at with the Stoops thing, which is that he's good at what he's good at. He's bad at what he's bad at, and his style of football just doesn't really seem to travel. I think it's pretty safe to say that when you're you now have had that test case of last year where your offense was so clearly worse, and they were and your and your defense. I think his defense is even better this year, and they got carved up. Yeah, but I, I think overall this this was a reminder. Georgia still very much knows what it's doing, and they yeah. have an upside that is um, maybe as good as there is in the sport. Yep. Let's talk about Arkansas and Ole Miss. This what a was, fun game. This is a weird game. A yeah. Weird, weird game. Will, have you ever been so hungover that you – stay with me on this. Have you ever been so hungover that you have to be around people and they approach you because they can tell that you're hungover? Um. Yeah, I've been there. I, like, I'll, let me go a step further. I went, I went to Europe, obviously, um, like this year, and I was there um, with my stepbrother who is like in AA, and it was so funny because he knew that me and Brady were getting out, get after it every night. Like we'd see him at breakfast every morning. He'd be like, how you gentlemen feeling this morning? And we'd just be like, good, man. Yep. That's it. <laughs> that right was, it was that, the breakfast right there. I was like, doing good, man. <laughs> that, that, okay. So when you're in that spot, that next day, whether you're in Europe, whether you're here, whatever, you're not doing things with anything other than a pass fail approach, right? <laughs> it is get to where you need to be at a specific time or just mm-hmm. don't be obnoxiously late. It is minimal effort with small talk at a, at a family function. If that's where you have to be when you're hungover, it is not attacking anything on the long-term to-do list. You don't have that True, kind of that's a good energy. Yeah. I thought Ole Miss reeked of that on Saturday. I, I did. And credit Arkansas for not being the thing that just let Ole Miss sleep in and ease into the day. Arkansas yep. did not do that. On the heels of Ole Miss having that emotional win against LSU, this was a game in which they ran into a team that was capable of making that headache even worse. Arkansas went up to Ole Miss's room, pounded on the door at 7 a.m. and said, hey, you've got 20 minutes to shower, eat, (laughs) and get in the car to go to grandma's house. That was the role that Arkansas played. When Arkansas came out with that long scoring drive, I was thinking, this is about to be the LSU game all over again. And and we just counted them out. And then, boom, they're going to make this a miserable experience and Ole Miss is going to think to themselves by the end of this day, just get me to the couch. Just get me to the couch, watching TV, doing absolutely nothing so that I can fully nurse this hangover. This is maybe your best metaphor. And I'll tell you why, because those two head coaches are exactly those two guys. Like Lane Kiffin is the guy who's like passed out of the couch and Sam Pittman's drinking his coffee up at 4 a.m. Like, yes, sir. Like, let's get it going boys. And like Lane's just like, dude, shut up. We just beat out you. Lane's hair has gotten so disheveled this season. And it really goes back to SEC media days too. And I I just remember thinking at at media days, what is Lane doing? Is, is, is that just the style he wants to go for mop top hangover? I I don't know. Whatever the case. One of my friends had a conspiracy theory that Lane's hair is attached to his visor. (laughs) Oh, like a Guy Fieri situation. (laughs) 
this is I'd seen him without a visor, but she had I was like, oh, that might be might be something. I think Jim Weber tweeted that actually, that exact thing. Yes, he mm-hmm. did. He definitely did, where it was the guy Fietti, and yes, it's Fietti, not Fieri. It's Fietti. Yeah. Um, where he had the, the visor with the hair on top of it. And I was just like, I, I have an appreciation for guy in ways that I'm not sure the average person does. And Lauren always makes fun of me for this. And I definitely looked at that homage apparel that has guy Fietti and NFL teams paired up. And that, that is just a match made in heaven. I need to get on top of that. But lane has a little bit of that. And Ole Miss looked just a bit hungover. They, they did Arkansas at least. They made this a 60-minute game. That defense, Travis Williams, I think, has actually been a, a really good hire. And they've been banged up in a lot of different areas. And their defense has improved. And they played really, really hard in that game. Ole Miss didn't convert a third down until the fourth quarter. Yep. I, I don't know what they started. It was like 0 for 9 or whatever it was. Jackson Dart was... He was banged up early. He's apparently working through something. The bye week is coming at a really nice time for him, it looks like. This is not the type of game that Kiffin typically wins. This is the type of hangover game in which Kiffin is like, look, I got a bail. I can't be at this barbecue. I need to go home, take some Pedialyte, sit in a dark room, and just chill and blast a fan on myself and deal with this the way that I know how. And look, they, they were able to win. They were coming into Saturday night. Ole Miss was underlaid, was 3-10 and 10 when it was held to less than 28 points. 3-10. That's it. Yep. They win shootouts, not defensive struggles. That's, that's why the game last year against Kentucky felt so weird. And this game also just did not feel like a typical Ole Miss win. And I bet there are a lot of Ole Miss fans who were sitting there thinking, we're, we're about to lose this game. When, when yep. our offense is this unreliable and this hungover, we just don't, we don't win this game. And look, they, they were able to do that. They were, they were able to do that. You know how when you are so hungover and you think the most basic of tasks looks, they, they just sound impossible. You know, you're like, wait a minute. Normally I could just go outside and mow the lawn. Like it's no big deal. I just go grocery shopping. I just do this. What? How, in what mind, in what mind frame do I need to get to, to be able to do these things? Old Miss in this one was basically like, wait a minute. We, we normally go out there and we try and go over the top and stretch teams out with the passing game. Like what? That's not. That seems impossible. Almost didn't have a passing play of 30 yards in this game. They did not. Think about how yep. bad Arkansas got gashed in the passing game last year. And they've kind of made those adjustments a little bit. They still can get hit there every once in a while, but not in this game. But the most important area where Ole Miss was not hungover whatsoever was turning Arkansas into a one-dimensional attack. Because yep. as we saw, you can have Rocket, you can have KJ. And you can still be held to 1.2 yards per carry if your offensive line blows chunks and it can't block a soul. That's not so being hungover. That's just like, permanently sick. Have they like body switched Bo Limmer? Like what's going on with that guy? <sighs> They've moved him around. They were moving things around even within this game. They're changing things up at center. It's bad. It's bad. Like I, I don't know what, what could be done at this point. Arkansas allowed nine TFLs in this game. That's 46 on the year. They have averaged nine TFLs allowed a 
against power five competition. That's nine instances in which you are falling behind schedule. How, how are you supposed to have drives, have touchdown drives when that is, that is just a given when there is, those are just such drive killers. And look, maybe you get, I don't know, nine offensive drives at a game. (laughs) That's it. Those, those will kill so many of your drives and Arkansas is just feeling like it is always climbing uphill. Always. Yep. Even when they get out to an early lead like that, it's just always, always uphill climb. This schedule has done them no favors. So like you think to yourself, all right, you've lost four in a row. You're finally out of the woods. You know, the schedule is going to get easier. Nope. You go to Bama yep. next week. Good sure luck. Do. Good luck. Yeah, it was bad. I, I don't know. I, I have no answers for this Arkansas offense at this point. I don't think Sam Pittman does either. Yeah. Um, so really quick, I want to add on to that metaphor. So the location that Sam Pittman is waking Lane Kevin up for certainly church. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, yep. If you guys, you know, if you've ever done a little bit of like party and then the South, especially when you're younger, that's always the bell call you got to wake up for is like, okay, it's gotta be good for church. want to make sure that we're not doing anything bad. That was exactly like what that was. But yeah, I, I will say this. Like, I think that let me try to think about how to say this correctly. Um, Can I ask you this, this though? Are we talking yes. traditional service or are we talking modern service? Because that makes a big difference. Oh, I mean, I, I it's always been modern service for me. That's my experience. And that is definitely better because um, you get the music going a little bit. You get you your free coffee. You can get it together. The the attire is different too. Oh, that's, yeah. That's a key part of this. Whereas if you're going to the more traditional, you got to dress a little bit nicer. You know, I, there's there are certain elements to it. Where I, I don't know that that hangover is just the worst possible thing that you could have going into that. Yeah, you can you can get you a little bit of you know hair of the dog if you get that like good Jesus music going. You get you some some coffee in you. You kind of start waving your hands. By the time the sermon gets going, you're locked in. So I think that's exactly what happened with Kiffin. And so I'll say like a couple of things here. These are two games that I feel like uh, I I don't want to be too mean to Lane Kiffin, but I do feel like I don't know that he showed me a ton in the last couple weeks, and I. I felt it coming when he had the excuse. Like, you know, Lincoln Kevin, he loves an excuse. Whenever he saw that Jackson Dart was a little bit banged up, it was like all everybody talked about for the rest of the game. Not factoring in that KJ Jefferson is like a Frankenstein monster at this point in his career, where it's like, I'm sitting there going, are we really talking about Jackson Dart taking a hit here when KJ has just so clearly not been right, like for most of the football we've seen him play? Same thing with Rocket. Rocket is great of a back as he was last year. Just really doesn't have that extra gear this year, it feels like. But you know, I, I say that to say, like, uh, you know, we've talked about it before with this Arkansas team. It's KJ and Rocket are just some guys we like to watch. They're just some guys that have been through a lot, you know, talking about with KJ going all the way back to the Chad Morris era. Um, and, and just, talk, you know, they were this resurgence of Arkansas football. And you see them out there, man, and they're just taking hit after hit behind this battle line. KJ is going to give you a bad turnover because he's just like – punch drunk at a point and like it just keeps happening it's like uh, you know against a and he had a bad turnover against Ole Miss he has this bad turnover and it's like man like I feel so bad for you and I can't even blame you because the fact that Arkansas is even in a game with Ole Miss at this point I'm just blown away that you guys are even able to make this happen based on the struggles that we know that you have so yeah I mean like you said I think that the future is not looking great for Arkansas. And, and as much as we love Sam Pittman, like those discussions are probably coming just because there's not really a way. I mean, if they, this is what kills me as I was thinking to myself, well, if they find a way to win this game, which it really looked like they were going to for a while, their offense was 
the better offense kind of on the day until almost turned it around at the end. And it was like, like, it was like, okay, well, if, if they win this game, I think Sam Pittman, the rest of the season can go however it wants. And he's pretty much saved his job because this would be this big win that you could say, okay, the guys believe in Sam Pittman. And that's what was so frustrating about this game is this was a game that the guys were playing so hard for Sam Pittman and they, every snap felt so crucial. And it was it was hard to watch because the guys just kind of banged up and, and you knew the turnover was coming and sure, sure enough it did. And then second, it's like, you can't really do that again, and you can't really do it again against Alabama. That was an empty-the-tank game for Arkansas, I feel like. I think if they lose to Bama, Pittman's record at Arkansas falls below 500. Man. That is significant for that buyout. I'm, I'm Again, I, I do not want Sam Pittman to get fired. I'm biased. Love the guy. Um, those conversations are being had. They just are. It's very hard to lose four or five in a row in this conference in year four. And not have those conversations. That That is just reality. Ole Miss, yep. real quick. Um, bye week coming up. Should yep. be the third consecutive season that Ole Miss goes into late October as a top 15 team. Just yep. take that for what it's worth. We talk about the lack of quality wins. Still, having relevance, um, I, I think, is what Ole Miss hoped for when it hired Lane Kiffin. Yeah, They have gotten that. I, 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 will, I will definitely give them that. Even though I think this group looks still very eight and four ish the beauty. And by the way, Ulysses Bentley is turning into a really nice player. And I probably need to talk about that a little bit more. Oh man. I mean that guy, it's funny. Cause like, it's like all, like not all, I still love Judkins, but the way I felt about Judkins last year is like how I feel about him this year. Every time he gets the balls electric. Yeah. Bentley, Bentley is turning into a guy that they can really, really rely on. And he's, he's been, he's been fun to watch and it's kind of a saving grace for a ground game that, that has struggled a lot and he can do some different things for you. But um, the beauty for Ole Miss, outside of that Georgia game, five very winnable games left on the schedule. So, yeah, that second loss is probably staring you right in the face. I, I still think that they probably will lose another game besides that Georgia game. But you're you're feeling like if you can come back healthy post-bye week with Jackson Dart, with Trey Harris, who just, for whatever reason, can't play two consecutive games and stay healthy, which is such a bummer because he's been great in a small sample size for them, the the wide receiver transfer from Louisiana Tech. But still, um, they need to be able to kind of get healthy and get right. Still heading into the bye week with one loss, I think for an Ole Miss fan, that's kind of what you were hoping for coming into the season. Yeah, and I think in the sorry, really quick, I, I, the thing that's funny about you is when you don't try to be funny, you're almost the funniest. I'm laughing because I'm like sitting there and you're, I was like, yeah, against uh, you know, he's very few wins against quality teams. I was sitting there, I'm like. He's a, he really did just beat a pretty bad LSU team. That was not a quality team. They beat. They beat. I'll, I'll still get. I'll, I'll give him credit. He, he beat a preseason yeah. top five team. That that to me, like we, it it looks worse because LSU got that second loss by virtue of playing against Ole Miss. So right, yeah, you know, t- it's chicken or the egg. But yeah, I, I will say, like in the micro, some stuff about latent frustration. We have talked about ad nauseum. In the macro, this is. I mean, uh, the best Ole Miss has been consistently. Uh, certainly that I can remember probably since the Cutcliffe Manning days, but even then I still feel like this team is weirdly more consistent as inconsistent as Lane Kiffin has been. So uh, yeah, I mean, just uh, to kind of uh, scale back, this is a game that we've seen Ole Miss as a whole and Lane Kiffin specifically lose. And I, I will give them credit for like being, you know, second place in the West, like top 15, like that's a really, really good place to be consistently. I wish LSU could do it. <laughs> 27 and 10, I believe in their last 37 was the graphic that they, that they showed. Uh, at the end of that game over the course of three seasons. You'll take that if you're an Ole Miss fan. All right. 
real quick, let's go. Let's talk a couple uh, takeaways from Vandy in Florida. Uh, no Trevor Etienne. Wish I had known that coming into this one. Didn't have two of their starting offensive linemen. Didn't matter. Did not matter. Vandy couldn't stop the run. Montreal Johnson Jr. was great. Florida run blocks at a really high level at home. Graham Mertz completed 83% of his passes. Did so behind a eh, pretty lackluster offensive line in terms of pass protection. That's still an issue. But every single time, uh, the the over-under that I should probably start doing for every Florida game is showing the national leaders in completion percentage because you get to put Mertz on that list yeah. every time. He was second, I think, coming into this one behind like only Bo Nix, I want to say. Both of which <laughs> wow. average depth of target. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Average depth of target, probably not doing either of them favors. But again, we've but talked But if about you had it. shown me those guys against air, I wouldn't have picked them to be one and two. So that's improvement for sure. Agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah, like Mertz is still not going to be the guy that's going to stretch the field. It didn't have the, the the downfield passing attack in this one. Ricky Pearsall continues to do great things, but still um, he's being, he's doing what's being asked of him. And that is what we continue to say about Graham Mertz. He is a good enough SEC quarterback. And I don't think he has been a minus for them. Even the games that they have lost, Utah, Kentucky, I don't think you would look and say, man, they were a quarterback away from winning that game. It was other issues that probably hurt them more so in that one. Uh, the one interception that they have was actually, it was like a half, it was like a halfback pass where, you know, Mertz throws behind the line of scrimmage and all bang the drum team member, CJ Taylor kind of swoops in, makes a really nice interception, kind of came in out of nowhere. A reminder that running backs aren't quarterbacks. Just, I don't know why we needed that reminder, but still we got yeah. it. Florida puts up 38 points at home, was in control on a day where it would have been really bad if Florida was not in control and it didn't put up 38 points for all the things that we talked about with Billy Napier's offense coming into this one. And I can talk about how absurd it is that people think Billy Napier is about to get paid $31 million not to work. But if you start losing to Vandy in consecutive years, you make realists like myself reconsider what's possible. You don't have to worry about that. That's not the conversation after this one. Nobody's going to be asking you about your play calling. That's the way this works, Billy Napier. You score points, you don't get questioned about scoring points. You don't score points, you get questioned about scoring points. Yes. What a concept. Results-based business. That's what this is. When you lose to Vandy, we make fun of you. When you beat Vandy, we say, great job. You scored some points. Very simple pass-fail grade here. Yes, 500 yards of offense. You don't have to use that as some weird way to justify that your team actually played well, a la Dan Mullen at Kentucky a couple years yeah. ago. Um, you, you did the things that you hoped. This is the blueprint for Florida, something that we've talked about a, a lot. If Billy Napier is of the belief that this shows his way is working, I would say, well, Vandy's still Vandy. That's a team that's getting absolutely smoked in the trenches. I would say, I hope if I'm a Florida fan, that Billy Napier was watching Mizzou have what it did against LSU and still being able to put up points. And m for the most part this year, offensively, I still think that's been a win hiring Robert Patrick Petrino. Just that's still my opinion to take away, by the way, great piece, great, great piece by our own Neil Blackman, SaturdayDownSouth.com about what Billy Napier is trying to do and the things that he is trying to work through and how boosters and how coaches in the sec are perceiving his rebuild great reporting from neil somebody that's just an, an absolutely awesome writer and somebody that's been a great part of our team for for some time now i wanted to make sure that i gave that a shout out as well i saw that making the rounds on social media florida is 4-0 at home 
with nothing but multi-score wins. 0-2 everywhere else with yep. nothing but multi-score losses. Guess what, Will? Hmm. Uh, Florida, they're four of their next five games, they are somewhere else. At South Carolina, bye week against Georgia and Jacksonville, home against Arkansas, at LSU, at Mizzou. I'm going to say, I think they're only going to be favored in one of those games. They might only be favored in one of those games. Now that could change. If they beat LSU, then they'd be favored at Mizzou. But I think if I had to guess, I think they'll be favored in one of those five games. Do you think that there is a path for Florida to be eight and four? Or do you look at that schedule and say, no, 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 this is still probably more like a six and six type team. I I think we're probably right in the middle. I mean, but that seven is where it's going to clock in. I want to say, as we say every time, we've been pretty much supremely correct on Billy. Now, maybe the specific games haven't been right, but the overall vibes and the overall record. They have been yeah, right. I'm, I've actually gotten it. I, every game in the preseason, I, I have gotten right. Okay, about, you've been about right. This. I'll take that. I'm going I'm to take there a rare go. dub on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, so point being like, yeah, I think that it's not like, you know, it's not like I'm a hater. I joke about it on Twitter, but I think I have been pretty objective about this team. And, and one of the reasons why is like, I joke about coaches that are and are not him. Like, I think we just kind of saw Eli, probably not him this weekend. Uh, Billy fully believes and could be him. Um, he's a guy that might be him in three or four years. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he is a dude who believes in himself. He, he is a guy like that. And, and I think that guys like that are so interesting to me because I've seen so many of the other guy who looks in the mirror and tries to convince himself that he's him. And, and Billy believes it every day. And his guys, his guys sometimes play that way. And the, the thing is, right. Like we just talked about for Stoops is winning on the road. And and I know that you just said it. I'm, I'm echoing that. It's the fact that they have an opportunity that if they weren't so wildly different home and road, uh, I mean, they should beat South Carolina. They, sh I mean, Mizzou should be kind of a pick 'em. You know what I'm saying? But the issue is, we've seen this team struggle so mightily against Kentucky. We've seen them struggle at Vandy. We've seen this type of stuff. So this is a really fascinating stretch about where Billy Napier is currently in this name and about who he's going to be. It's just this is his current, you know, dragon. He's got to slay. And so it's it's tough because I, after the Tennessee game, did the whole thing. I was like, yeah, I think he's going somewhere. And then immediately the Kentucky game just washed all that away so you got to find consistency that's what it is if you're going to lose on the road lose on the road respectably that's not what they did against Kentucky they had 13 dudes on the field so it's like even losing respectably I think is a step up because you know at home you're a you're a dog you know that you're hard to beat at home so I think you know I, I think it's going to be super interesting so yeah I, I think this South Carolina game is actually super pivotal because I don't really see this team beating Georgia just gonna you know say that um so I think that if they can at least you know win or respectively lose against South Carolina. Now you're talking about where well, they probably should beat Arkansas, especially at that point in the year. So yeah, I, I think the back out for the schedule for Florida, I'm going to be dialed in every week because it's going to be really, really interesting for not only this season, but Billy Napier's arc as a head coach. Yes. And the, the game that I did not include in that four of the next five home against Florida state is the regular season finale, of course. So you're looking at probably one more game in which you're going to be favored. This is this is where we find out a lot. This is where we find out a lot about who this team is. And I am, I I love that the teams that I make fun of are always the ones that just embarrass LSU. But like the way Florida State has played certain games, you never know. You, you never, know. never know. Not against LSU, but everyone else. Yes. <laughs> maybe if that team shows up, maybe they have a shot. So we'll see. Some defensive issues for sure with the Seminoles. Okay, let's end with some yarn now. Well, three questions so here. 
Yeah or not, the SEC's only guys who can get to New York are Jaden Daniels and Brock Bowers. I think at this point, probably, we've talked about, you know, who's the second best quarterback. Um, I think that there may be a Carson Beck situation. Maybe we get a little bit of Carson Beck takeover, you know, maybe. But I think if you look at the Georgia offense, man, you're looking at Brock Bowers. I mean, as much as I really do think that Carson Beck took a step forward, he's not the best player in his offense. It's honestly not close. Yeah. Entering the day, I I looked this up because I was – I wanted to make sure I wasn't losing track of something. I wanted to kind of see where those Ray Davis odds were just in case he exploded against Georgia and kind of know what that was going to look like game to game. Uh, Jaden was first among SEC players at 35 to one. He was 10th overall in the odds. That's it. I'm guessing those have since improved. Brock was 70 to one, 16th overall in the odds, but second in the SEC. Um, Jaden's pre-Heisman pace if LSU doesn't win the West. So we're talking 12 games. Consider this 38 to four TD to INT ratio, 3,938 passing yards, 844 rushing yards, eight rushing TDs. So total that'd be 46 touchdowns and 4,782 yards. That is, that's a 12 game pace and they have had a difficult start to the schedule. I would say for sure. Jaden getting to New York is by no means off the table. It's not. And people are going to say like, all right, well, yeah, you've already had that second loss. You can go back and find quarterbacks that have had, that have played for teams that haven't necessarily been in the national championship conversation that have still been there, that have still been part of that. Obviously it helps you, but if he's putting up crazy numbers, which it looks like he's going to need to do with how bad that defense looks, just if if you can get odds on, you know, guys getting to New York or something like that, Jaden is is looking the part in so many ways. I mean, he is, it's not going to be Burrow levels of, of LSU dominance for a quarterback, but that pace is insane. And, and we should probably be talking about it a little bit more. He definitely has all SEC first team looking like that is very much on the table for him. Yeah, I mean, if losing disqualifies you, uh, we're talking about Caleb Williams repeating and a guy that will not win a national championship. I'm here to tell you right now, we both stayed up till the wee hours of the morning watch this dude struggle mightily against Arizona. So it would be one thing if you had like a Derrick Henry or like one of these dudes who's on like an undefeated team. Uh, We're again seeing exactly just a Lincoln Riley quarterback, which I mean, is he the most talented one of those? Probably not. That was probably Kyler Murray. So point being like, I just like, I've been so out on that dude from the jump. I don't like the way that he, I just don't Hmm. like the way that he processes struggle. I think that's something that we've seen kind of over and over again. I was talking to my buddy about this, where it's like Lincoln Riley attracts quarterbacks that are basically just one and done basketball players. And so, yeah, I I think that for the Jaden standpoint, if your whole thing is like, Jaden loses, their defense is bad. It's like, you guys gave Caleb Williams this award after he lost to Utah for a second time last year. Like, I don't know what to tell you, man. Losing to Alabama is not the same as losing to Utah. True. I I still think Caleb was, was worthy and, he had a bad night against Arizona. And like you said, I stayed up and and watched that as I was watching that too. You know what else I did? I looked up the, I tried to find the last power five tight end to hit a thousand yards in a season, because I think if Brock were to hit a thousand receiving yards pre Heisman, that would be really significant. Last power five to do that. Only power five tight end in the 21st century that I could find was Jason Morrow, who Mm -hmm. also played at Texas tech in a passing game where they threw the ball 55 times. And if I recall, there was a big issue with his blocking and that's why he didn't even win the Mackey award that year. <laughs> God, I, so love I, don't think, 
I don't, I don't think it's going to be like Jason Morrow, Brock Bauer side by side. I don't think that that comp is really going to come into to play, but yeah. hitting a thousand yards, like that's, that's kind of the benchmark. If he does that pre Heisman getting to New York, I think is, is very much still on the table for Brock with how good he has looked these last three weeks, man. It is, it is just unbelievable to, to watch, but I still would not be putting a bet on him to, to win the award, but going to be part of that conversation we need a lot of chaos and we need a, to go on an absolute tear in the second half of the season for that to happen yeah and as you know that i talked about it after the south carolina game i was like hey they're using them like gay rome i think that that is uh, as, <laughs> who would have thought unlocking the throw the ball to block brock bowers play has unlocked the george offense it's night and day i mean in terms of now they're starting to use him with some of those monkey concepts now they're starting to move him around the field now they're starting to play him as a just a weapon and not just an inline blocking tight end so yeah sky's the limit yarna oklahoma should be a top three team after beating texas lock of the week hits yeah, I don't know what we've seen that makes them not. I mean, this is like a, a, another night and day, which is you know, Lincoln Riley's Oklahoma and Brent Venable's Oklahoma. Man, those boys are some dogs out there. They they are they can push some people around. They absolutely yep. can. I would rank Oklahoma ahead of Ohio State. I'd rank them ahead of Michigan. I, I would. I, I would have no if you if you want to tell me today Oklahoma is number two and even put them ahead of FSU, I'd probably still put FSU at two if I had an AP if I had an AP vote, but Oklahoma mm-hmm. at three, I, I don't think you should be looking beyond that. I think they should just trade places with Texas. I really yes. do. I think that's one of those instances, which look, they, they just, after the start that they had, where I talked about that only team in the country, top five in both scoring offense and scoring defense. Yes. Strength of schedule is not particularly good, but when you actually confirm, Hey, we're doing some things right by going out and beating that Texas team, forcing the turnovers that they did on Quinn Ewers, man, I was, I was really impressed. I think Oklahoma is absolutely legit. Probably going to get a rematch in the Big 12 championship, though. And who knows how that'll play out. Again, just another reminder, Brandon Venables defense, Jeff Levy offense. Good combination. Good combination. Who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, we were big on them last year. Turned out to be a year early, um, yep. but I think we were right. <laughs> I mean, that, that, I don't think that was a bad take. I think it just took – you had to get all these losers out of the system that were played for Lincoln Riley. <laughs> they, they overhauled the, the the defense, too, in the portal big time. And this is another reason why we don't judge your one coaches on this podcast. It's another reason why you don't mm-hmm. do that. Unless it's good. <laughs> yeah, unless it's good. Um, speaking of year two coaches, ya or not, the U is back to being the national punching bag. Oh my, oh my gosh, bro. Oh, if, I was telling if, you off camera, two of my buddies were at that game and I turned it and I laughed for 10 straight minutes, bro. <laughs> if you didn't see what happened here, Miami had a three point lead and they fumbled the ball when they could have kneeled. And with 33 <laughs> seconds left, Georgia Tech, Haynes King, my guy, I never sold my stock. Never. No, I very much did. Um, they went 74 yards. Haynes King finds former Bama receiver Christian Leary, Orlando native, 44 yards for the win with like two seconds left. If you've seen the Miami player on the bench who is just going to be a meme for the rest of time, you know that that is just like as deflating of a loss. Mario Cristobal, what in the world are you doing? Some bad clock management issues between that, between Jed Fish not knowing in double overtime that you need to start going for two, trying to kick a field goal instead of going for two when you had the touchdown at the end of the first overtime. Just the, the Saban thing that I already brought up where Milrow mm-hmm. is, is throwing the ball on first down and stopping the clock. Just bizarre clock management issues that we saw all over the place in college football. Mario Cristobal watching an undefeated season have its first blemish 
because of that. Oh, not not a good day for your boy Tyler Van Dyke either to to have that in that spot. You got to got to be no, a little bit bad. more aware. Yeah, yeah, and it's I think I, t- I was talking to one of my other buddies. It's not at the game obviously last night. And I was just thinking it's like Miami has got to be the most like memeable program in the in the country because it's like okay, let me take Iowa for instance. Iowa is doing the best with what they got. You know what I'm saying? They're putting out these NFL tight ends. They're putting out some defensive players. Is Iowa doing the best? It, is Iowa doing the best it can by having nepotism lead the offense? I would argue no. Just no, just, no, no, no. And I don't, I'm, I'm saying I don't like that part of it, and they could improve that. But okay, they hire you know Garrett Riley, or they win a national championship. No, you know what I'm saying like they, they just don't. I mean, they're a fine football team that I think overachieves almost every year, despite that. But the thing about Miami is like they have like I was joking with my. Let me ask you this question: What percent of Miami's games do you think they have a talent disadvantage in? Just Clemson, just... pretty much, right? <laughs> nah, well, I mean, it depends how you look at Florida State. We already talked about the composite rankings and how they're complicated with them because of how portal-reliant yeah. they've been. I, they probably have the talent advantage and I don't know, 80% of the games they played. They didn't have the talent advantage against A&M, if you're just yeah. looking at it from, from that standpoint. But it's so it's so hard to be able to tell. But yeah, the vast majority of the time, they probably still have the talent advantage. Yeah. And like, that's all I'm saying with that is like, you know, there's only so much we can make fun of like teams that just don't have the resources to win national titles. Miami every single year finds a way to just blow it. And like this against Georgia Tech is so typical Miami because it's like, yeah, you still have to beat, you know, FSU, Clemson, do X, Y, and Z. You're, you're doing well, but you still got to do that. And now it's like, well, now you got to go undefeated and you're not going to do that because you're Miami. So like, I hate to say season's over, but it's like, you needed to have a puncher. You needed to coin flip those two games and have a bunch of stuff go right for you. And now that's just not going to happen. And like I said, it's like, you're sitting there, dude, the guy you were talking about, Lee, not to like do this whole thing. He came from UCF. They gave him NIL money to come play center. <laughs> the guy that was crying on the bench, that guy got paid to come play center. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's like, I can't feel sorry for this team because they just have, they pay for all these dudes and then they lose and it's, they've achieved so much less than A&M and I make fun of them. I'm just, look, college football is not good unless Miami is also good. And when the internet tees off on Miami for losing in that way, it means that college football is bad, or at least that's the lazy narrative when it comes to Miami having all 15 people in the stands watch them lose in devastating fashion. I told Connor, I said, I said, yeah, two of my buddies were there, man. It, without missing a beat, dude, just go. So that was like half of their attendance, huh? Yeah, cool. <laughs> Good for them. Uh, look, there, there are actual die. I know some diehard Miami fans. I do actually. Feel no, they are. Them. They just don't but, go to games. But still, gosh, what a, what a bad, bad way to lose. Let's go out on that note, Will. Uh, week yeah. six was great. Start to finish entertainment. Need to go get a little bit of sleep after USC made me uh, stay up way past my bedtime. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Pete. Follow us on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at the STS Pod, at Sat Down South, at CGO Guerra, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. See you.